love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise and glory this morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for filling in for us. A couple of those songs I had, not, or one of them I'd never heard before. And, uh, but I do like that one that says, uh, where we have the response, uh, we do, he does, he will. Uh, do we really believe that? It's a beautiful thing to be able to respond. The word cloud is something I always like to bring up in, in front of our congregation before the word of God is opened. You're in a Bible-believing church, and we're unashamed of that. Uh, we want you to know that without a doubt that if it's in the Word of God, we're going to treasure it. There are some passages that are uncomfortable, especially the ones that are convicting. Uh, you know about those passages? You know your favorite verses that convict you? Um, I know the ones that are the ones that you may not call them our favorites, but they're the ones that we almost would like to avoid. But all the Scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction in righteousness that the men and women of God might actually be matured, that they might be complete, that they might be perfected, uh, that they might be trained so that they could do the work of the ministry. Uh, if you look at the word cloud, you'll also see that the reason we treasure the Bible, it's not just a, a book of archaic words and phrases and sayings, not just a great collection of stories and narratives, but it, inside of this is we find the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're gospel-driven. The good news, as I've already indicated, is that God had before the foundations of the world appointed that Jesus would be the covenant Savior. He would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And all those images and all that even language I used begins to explain how sinners like us can be forgiven. It was all a part of God's design, and that's the good news of the gospel. And because of the good news of the gospel, the other words around the word cloud, whether we're reformed, we give God the glory rather than man. We are covenantal. We know that God's not going to change the way that we're going to be saved. He entered in the covenant. This is the way it's going to be until eternity. Uh, we also know that when we talk about friendly and, and caring and multi-generational, all of those things are saying, hey... Wherever you find yourself, if you're young or old, if you're as little as Pablo that you got to meet a few minutes ago, or whether you're as old as some of the other ones here, God is interested. God is compassionate. And you are a child of God. If you're a believer in Christ, and because of that, you're part of the community, and that community is caring and is cherishing of worship. And that's why we want to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as we've done today. We have come to meet, and my prayer is not that you get the best sermon that you've ever heard. My prayer is not that you're wowed by the greatest music that's ever been played. It's not that you would be able to feel warm because it's so cold outside, or that you catch up on your sleep because you lost an hour last night. My prayer is that you will meet with God. And if you met with God, you'll never be the same again. And if you leave this place bitter and angry, if you leave this place confused and frustrated, if you leave this place wanting to tear down instead of building up, maybe you shouldn't leave this place until you've encountered the living and true God have that peace that passes understanding, to be able to say, he does love me. Let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's and Aaron inspired infallible word. If you'll turn with me to the uh, New Testament, we're going to the book of Acts chapter 
5. Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 5 and also is going to be connected to Acts chapter 4. So if you look in Acts chapter 5, the one text there, uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, this is the history of the early church after it had received the power that uh, was unleashed by the Holy Spirit. I always believe the Holy Spirit's always been here. Uh, I can show you a scripture on that, but his power was released at Pentecost to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was putting what it said in Acts 1.8. It says, and you shall receive this power. After that, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you, and you're going to be a witness. You're going to be able to tell the world you got something to say. And he says, I'll be with you. But in Acts chapter 5, we can see that when the gospel was going out, uh, it didn't go out and get received so readily and easily by everybody. So in, in chapter 5, verse 18, I want to highlight this particular text. It says, they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. Love to preach on that text. Come and follow me as I follow Christ. And where do you think we might end up? Is the world going to just throw money at you? When you look at chapter 5, verse 18, I mean, this is only, this is three chapters now from Peter's great sermon at Pentecost, where 3,000 were converted. Peter is out there, and instead of getting the applause of the populace, instead of getting the, uh, the elected officials or the, the ones who had been appointed to be able to say, oh, great, aren't we awesome? We have the apostles nearby. We have the disciples here. They can tell us firsthand about all this stuff. No, 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 no. Acts chapter 5, verse 18 again says, they arrested the apostles and they put them in prison. Now, to give you the context, please turn back to another text in chapter 4, verse 18. In chapter 4, verse 18, you're going to run into the core issue here. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's our core text today. I'm going to read it quietly and let it sink in. So they called them, that is the Christians those speakers of the gospel, and they charged them never to do it again. Not to speak or even to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that you might help us to see the significance of this message, the timeliness of this topic. Lord, I pray that you would equip the saints to be able to give the message of hope to others. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. We are... uh, we're looking at a particular passage that was brought to my attention, uh, not only by experience, but because, I mean, it's in Scripture, but Erwin uh, Lutzer uh, wrote this book, and I encourage you to get it. Some of you already have. In chapter 4 of this particular text, uh, I've been, I want to go over this with my family. One of our goals this year was to look at it. It says, freedom of speech for me, but not for thee. The growing trend to stifle and shame those who uphold conservative or Christian worldviews. That was one of the... the, uh, Irwin is is a pastor in Chicago region. Uh, He's been there for a few years, wrote quite a few books. And uh, he was writing this one to our generation, to the now time, saying, Hey, will you be silenced? And the challenge there is for Christians is not to be silenced. Hence, the title of the sermon is, has to do with uh, a biblical response to the cancel culture. If you look at the front of your bulletin card, your, or the bulletin today, you're going to see a picture of what kind of a place? Library. It's a library. 
Um, as, we, as we picked this picture and put it on the front, some were, were questioning, has anybody, have you actually been in a library recently? You know, there's so many things that are available to you on your, on your internet or your phone uh, or even uh, by television and your, and your streaming choices. How many people actually go to a library? I'm kind of laughing because my daughter is in the back and she lives in the library. I think so. At law school, they have to read and read and read and read. Um, but the idea of a library is normally a place where people are what? Educated. That's a good word. I always remember when we went as kids, we went to the library, you were always told to, shh, be quiet. Is the church supposed to be a place where you're supposed to be quieted? Shh, don't say anything. Just be nice. Sit in your seat. Don't ruffle anybody's feathers. Don't bother the person next over there. And make sure the librarian doesn't notice you. When you finish, put your books back or put them in the right bin and then tiptoe. Is the church supposed to be a library? Where people are just so quiet? Now, it is kind of interesting that we're going to be launching or relaunching or reviving our library ministry this summer. Uh, there has been a generous donation of some quality books, and I'm going to encourage people to be reading a quality book all the time. If you don't have some in your own home library, we've got a few here. Recommended reading because we know that books are good, especially the good ones. But the idea here of being silenced is something that is so natural for us that we almost come out of the womb being told to be quiet. Isn't that the first thing you say to your kid that's crying? Shh! Or you pat them in their butt. I don't know how that makes them stop crying. It would make me think that it would make them want to cry more. But that whole idea we're being shushed and quieted all of our lives. So this idea that Lutzer brings out about being silenced, for some people it's just as normal. That's just the way it's supposed to be. And they abandoned this understanding of the First Amendment and even the understanding of why America was formed in the first place. And maybe even they even miss why God made us different than everything else on this planet. We are not animals, regardless of what the scientists tell you. We are made in the image of God. And, and we're, not just to, we're not here to be silenced Actually, if you finish this verse with me, go into all the world and make disciples. And he doesn't say do that with your zipper over your lip. And at the church here, one of our mantras or the mission statement that we have is to communicate the gospel by what? By our words, by our deeds, and with our passions, with everything you've got. It's how you talk. It's how you believe. It's how you live. It's what you value. And yet, how many of you have been silenced already Amen. when was the last time you shared about Jesus Christ I mean all of us know there's protocols right you don't want to be awkward you don't want to do things I mean my goodness we're already being trained on the airplanes now we have to put stuff over our faces so we can't even look to see if somebody when you start sharing the gospel with them whether they even want to hear it or not they want you to have social distance to be further away. They, the world is just setting itself up so that we are quieter and quieter, hushed and silent. 
We've been censored, marginalized, bullied, and we've even realized that it's, it's raised to the level of being canceled and almost made invisible. Today's text in Acts actually helps to clarify the core matter. And, and when you look there in Acts, when we realize that this is in the first century, uh, the first thing you realize, it's not a new battle. It's not brand new. Just like the fighting in the Ukraine with rifles, tanks, dra uh, with drones, missiles, and shelling, this stuff is not just saying, oh, we never knew what war was. Many of you have had your memories triggered of what war has been. And those of you that have experienced it or have had relatives that have gone through it, you have all known that none of them want to talk about it. Shh. My dad never even wanted to speak about Nazi occupation. War is hell. In this particular passage, we find that the battle is not new. It's been going on for thousands of years. And in Acts, we also find it reveals that this battle is not insignificant. The, the idea of silencing Christians, silencing those that know Christ, it's not insignificant. It's actually a big deal. It happened as one of the early chapters right after the great outpouring of the Spirit's power. And also this text reveals that this is a core issue of the spiritual warfare that Paul explained in Ephesians 6. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not just about people. It's not about other people that have hearts that pump. It is about truth. And whether it's going to be spoken or whether it's going to be silenced or canceled or eliminated. Amen. So with God's enabling, let us be ready to break the silence and to speak up. The, the three points of the sermon, if you follow along in your fourth, fourth point page, if you're taking some notes, uh, the first one is about the theory of silencing. Second is the experience of being silenced, which we'll find in the text. And third, the antidote to being silenced. And that really is a big part of our application today when you realize how do you end up being moved to do something, ultimately breaking the silence, communicating the good news. It's really kind of interesting when you see how it all unfolds. Now, so quickly, let's move to the first point, the theory of silencing. I've read the chapter that he had in here, and, uh, and he cites a few illustrations. Uh, but there are three things that you're going to find whenever you're considering the idea of silencing. The concept or the theory that are behind it, there's three facets that you always will have. Three facets. But before I explain those three facets, I want you to know that the idea of being quiet uh, or being hushed actually is actually biblical. This is, I couldn't ignore it, okay? I want you to know that the Bible just doesn't want you to go around and just, uh, the God of the Bible doesn't say, just yell and scream and do everything. And make all that kind of noise. God is not the author of confusion. If you listen, he actually challenges us to guard our speech. In James chapter one, he says, be slow to speak, slow to wrath, but be quick to hear. If you go into Ephesians 4, he says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. No deception, no manipulation. He does not allow you to come and sow discord. He says, don't let any corrupt communication let out, but be kind and let your grace, let your speech be always gracious. In James chapter 3, he says, you should bridle your tongue. He says, don't let it just run free, because if it runs free, it's like a fire. It'll burn things down like at Panama City with the, with the raging grass fires. Your tongue can hurt and destroy. And James says, put a muzzle on it. Guard it. 
in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says we are supposed to live an interesting life. If you bring that verse up, first of all, I urge you that prayers and supplications, intercessions, and all these things be made for all kinds of people. And the next verse you might have missed, for kings and for all who are in positions of authority, that we may, let me see if I can read that right, that we may have a peaceful and a quiet life. Are you having a quiet right life right now? Are you on the treadmill that's running, running, running? Are people stirring you up? They're saying things that make you uncomfortable and make you ride on the side of a fence or something? Are you being badgered into saying, oh, no, this war is bad, or, or, or we should send pilots, or we should send airplanes, or, or we should uh, not allow certain oil in our country. All these things are just pressing people to make decisions, to take one side or another. How many people are quiet? How many people have just been able to be still and enjoy God? The idea for prayer, which is why we're having that prayer vigil weekly, is that we would be able to have this quiet and peaceful life where we're not stirred up and living in a constant unrest. I sometimes think of an illustration from Bob Baxter, one of my mentors when I was a young pastor, and he used, he used a, a, a bowl of water or basically a jar of water, and it had sand in it, and when you stir up the sand, what happens? It, you can't see through the jar. But finally, the sand will settle, and then you can see again. But it has to be quiet. It has to settle. If you keep stirring it up, it'll never reside. Now, I want to encourage you here is that the, uh, the, the challenge here is that we are to bridle our tongue. Uh, we're, we're supposed to be ready to speak when we need to. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. In other words, when you get bumped, you ought to spill out an answer. You ought to be ready to speak up. But he doesn't say you have to speak up all the time. In fact, I can take you to the Old Testament text where it talks about the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, it is an awesome thing. It tells you either to charge, doo -doo 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 -doo, or it's going to tell you to retreat, or it's going to tell you to go home. But if you have trumpets that are just making noises randomly, it's a mess. It's dissonance. And so when we are ready to speak, I want you to know that Scripture tells us that how important it is to have uh, some control of what comes out of our mouth. Okay, now, let me show you the three points that are the three facets that are deal with silencing. And Lucer ends up bringing it up at the beginning of his chapter. He says, silencing is a tool that the evil one likes to use. He says, in every revolution, you always have this, this, this new press for some government, some takeover. But they say one of the things that they have to do to succeed is to put a zipper on people from talking. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to sit down. Tell them to go home. Tell them to give up their weapons. But he ends up saying, silencing the opposition, silencing speech is one of the tools that they end up using. But having been created in God's image, people have a soul. And so it's not, this, this whole issue of silencing is so much more than just sound. And this is why I often say, uh, just compare it to the animals for a moment. You might be able to have a barking dog that you can learn to silence. You might have an operation or you might even learn how to feed it a little bit too much. You know what I mean. The different techniques to be able to, to, to get that dog to be a little quieter. But we're people. 
And the idea of, of silencing is not about debarking, but it is about the souls of mankind, whether we're going to speak the truth or whether we're not. So the three aspects come this way, and you can follow along real quick. Silencing presupposes a message that is to be communicated. That's the first thing, the first facet. Silencing presupposes a message that is to be communicated. In other words, you can't silence something that, that is never going to be said. There always is something that is supposed to be said. Something that has to move from where it is to where it needs to be. That communication. Silencing doesn't even exist if there is no original transmission. So notice that's the first facet. The second facet is silencing reveals a pre-existing issue that is in conflict with that message. In other words, the reason why silencing is even uh, rearing its ugly head, the reason why anybody would want to shut somebody up is because that what is going to be said is going to be in conflict with what they want. There's some conflict, some issue, some matter that they are just... <laughs> now, they may not have the ugly face and the scowl, but there's just turmoil in their soul. And the best thing they want to do is put a muzzle on you. The third part about silencing is achieved by the use of power. I might call it the use or the abuse of power. Now, think about this for a moment. In our text, you're going to find that as we show the experiencing of it. Uh, this power or the abuse of power is to prevent, to pollute, or to persuade. Let me explain it real quick, the theory of it. Uh, the power to prevent the message from being shared. Basically, they're trying to cancel it as if to cancel a speaker on a college campus or to close a church by now allowing it to meet, to ban parents from participation. It is to not carry the story on the news or to ignore it as if it was never even real. They, the first idea of preventing the message from getting out is to, is to not give it a transmission. That's a pretty scary thing. The second way is to pollute it. The message can be polluted by being tainted, stripping it of its credibility, of its understandableness, and even of its usefulness. They come up with new terms. They, they, they basically try to say that the person delivering the message is a phony or a fraud, or this person can't actually speak the truth because they messed up five or ten years ago. And they cast doubt of any kind of veracity. And therefore, many people don't even, they can't even discern between what is truth and what isn't. And the third way is the power to persuade. Now, this, this is a little more subtle. And this is where I think it hits us the most. The power to persuade the messenger to self-censor, to simply be quiet, to retreat from the arena of ideas, to submit to the world's new great commission, go without God, fall in with the new concepts of this postmodern thinking. Theirs is here to stay. We want them, they want us to conform to this world, to be absorbed into the global mindset. For those of you that are Trekkies, to be a part of the Borg. Are any of you know what I'm talking about? Good, there's at least five of you nodding your heads. Let me summarize this real quick. The theory behind this is that there's something to say and that it is not welcomed to say that and there's going to be efforts to be able to silence you, and that's what silencing is all about. Now, did you see what the core of this is? The core of it has to do with there's something to communicate. 
There's, there's an idea that has to be. Now, I argue that the evil one has been at this for some time. The prince and power of this air, he is quite good at it over the ages with his dark forces to be able to squelch the truth getting out. Because we all know how easy it is to go and meet a total stranger and tell them about Jesus, how he saved your life, right? It's the easiest thing for you to do. I bet you money that it's much easier for you to order lunch today. It's almost like as long as you have money and you can do the exchange, you can fit into the system, you can make it all work. But as soon as you break the protocols of the system, it becomes uncomfortable, awkward, and you usually self-silence. Let's just get along. I don't want to be singled out. I don't want to be the ugly one. And it's really kind of interesting when you follow through on this. Okay, once you get the theory, then the practice, the second point comes into play. The experience of being silenced. And this is found in chapter 4 and 5 of Acts. The silencing of God's messenger. Now, the first part there is let's recognize the content of the message that was there. In Acts chapter 4, we find Peter speaking up. Now, I have it printed for me in, in the text for me. And if, if you'll go to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 7 and following. Now, when they had set... And, and, and this is the actual text. And when they had set them in the midst, they re-inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, the secular, or the, I, sh I don't want to call them the secular, but the non-Christian community, those that were the professional religious people, they're looking at the Christians now. They're looking at Peter, and they're saying, what? You can almost hear it. What? Okay, and when they say this, uh, they're saying, you know, this is different. Now, they're trying to figure this all out, if you will. Find, uh, but in, in, uh, in verse 8, he says, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit of God, he ends up telling us what's the content of this message. Because they were all upset about the guy getting healed in the earlier verses. But this is the message. Rulers of the people and the elders. Verse 9. If we are being judged or examined today concerning the good deeds that we have done to this poor man, to this guy who had difficulty in his life, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, you're judging us because you can't figure out how he got better. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people. Do you get the idea that there's something he's trying to communicate? Do you think it's just a little thing? He's just trying to slip this in, right? No, there is a big message that needs to be communicated. And look at it. He says, let it be known to all of you by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you. This, this verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, by the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no, or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Um, do you think that message is, is just uh, soft <laughs> let us recognize the content of the message now you can take a little bit of time and think about it for yourself what's the core of what Peter is saying Peter is saying I'm trying to secure my job no Peter is saying we want to take over the government no what is Peter really trying to say? What is he clearly communicating? He's communicating that there is a person named Jesus Christ 
and there's nobody like him. And in order to help them to realize that this isn't a Jesus of his own imagination, he says, you know this Jesus. You guys, you know him. You've actually heard him. You saw his visage. You saw how he was despised and rejected. You know because you shouted, crucify him. You put him up there. You maneuvered Pilate to, to crucify this guy. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. Now, he just didn't rub their nose in the diaper, so to speak. But he also told them some of the good things about this Jesus. And I'm telling you about this Jesus, too. We need to hear today. There is no other person who can rescue you from your crap. There's nobody else that can bring you through the miseries of this life and give you a place in heaven prepared for glory. There is no other name given among men whereby you can receive the salvation from the wrath of God upon your sin. Do you see? I could just stop right here to be able to look at the content of this message. But the focus here is, is that if you don't have this content, then there's no need to silence. Because secondly, when we look at the diagnosis of the conflict with that message, you can clearly see why people are upset. Why silencing is a good choice. The people that are around there can't stand that guy named Jesus. They already tried to get rid of him. They already tried to cancel him. They already deceived. They manipulated. They, they pulled all the power plays. They played all the political games. They took him in front of the right politicians. They, ex they, they were awesome at it. I think everybody must have the same game plan. Satan must really be effective at passing it along from generation to generation. Whenever you hear, oh, this same common thing is for everybody, I'm telling you, it's really interesting how people will pick up on what other people have said and what other people have said to be able to, uh, to basically to pollute or to shake up the, uh, the sand so that it's murky and you don't even know. These people couldn't stand Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They had all celebrated that Jesus had gone down. Even though they probably felt the ground shake, they probably saw the dark sky. They probably saw all the stuff and they heard the rumors that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore. They probably heard all of that. But they're standing there now and they're like, what? And then from that, what? Then they go, no way. And you can see that they're going to say, shut up. And I'm not going to use any expletives, but you hear that in our culture today. They add extra words in the middle, shut up. Hopefully you're not guilty of doing that. We really don't want to have to silence people. But the reason that they're silencing is because of the conflict and the issue that is inherent within them. How many of them know that Jesus is loving and kind? How many of them really know that he is the good shepherd? How many of them know that he'll lead you in the paths of righteousness during your life? How many of them know that Jesus is the only one who can prepare a place for you in heaven? How many of those people know that goodness and mercy follow you all the days of the Christian life? Do they know that Jesus? No. They know about a Jesus who was messing up their world system. They know about a Jesus who made them feel guilty. They know about a Jesus that got in the way. They, got a, they know about this Jesus that has these weird followers that actually go to church and give money in the offering boxes. That, that Jesus, and, and these weird people that are Jesus followers, they actually tell you when you're dying, oh, you need to repent. 
These weird people, they actually bring it up before they eat every meal. They talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they even sing, there's just something about that name. <laughs> when they're talking about you, they're disgusted with you because they think you're a loon. If you look at how, how he said it here, he says, um, this same Jesus who was a stumbling block, he says, uh, verse 11 of, of chapter 4, this Jesus was rejected by you. He, he is now the chief guy. He says, it was a stumbling block. If you go to 1 Corinthians, people couldn't get it. You, you mean that guy that was almost without any clothes on, that died that miserable death with that crown of thorns on his head, who murmured those weird words, Father, forgive them? That guy, he's dead and gone. You see, the conflict is not really about Jesus. The conflict is within the soul of an unbeliever who doesn't see the truth. And they have to rely on their own understanding. They have to come up with their own agenda. They have to create their own utopia. They have to replace the heaven that Jesus told us about with one of their own making. It's so sad. When you diagnose this conflict, then the real issue is that they just don't have the eyes of faith. The third part about this, this theory being applied by experience is let's identify their techniques. When the, when the people came after Peter and the other followers of Christ, it's interesting if you read chapter 4 and 5, you can see first they evaluated the messengers. Peter, what school did he go to? Oh, he didn't go to an Ivy League school. Can't you tell by his accent? He's from up north in Galilee. He's not very educated. They don't even have libraries up there. I mean, you could just picture the way that they're evaluating him in the tents, and the silencers were aware of the voice that was speaking, and they felt superior to this inferior. Secondly, if you look at the text, the way that they were going to silence Peter, they conferred as to how to minimize his effectiveness in thwarting them. Silencers were quick to coordinate. They got together, just like in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine these things? He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and they take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed one. This is what people do in this world. They get together with other people who don't agree and then they come up with a voice. And they use that technique called democracy. They use the mob. In Psalm 1, you already know it. Blessed is the man that doesn't fit in with the group that does what? You know it. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, but he doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scorners or stay there. Uh, he doesn't stay amongst the people who are anti-Christ. The third thing they do is they implemented a silencing campaign. They started to wield their power. They tried to figure out how they can shut this guy up. And they found a couple interesting ways. They used force of directed speech. They looked at him and said, you, be quiet. Then secondly, they used the force of the majority to pressure everybody else to shh. If everybody in this room says shh, 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 we would have a lot of snakes sounding people. But what would happen if, you were, if I was standing up here and all of you were telling shh, 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 shh. How long do you think I would keep speaking? This is what the mob does. And when there are only one or two or three or four of them, they try to make it so that there's 8, 12, and 20. Because they want more people on their side to be able to use the majority force. 
Third, they use force to suppose superiority, that they're smarter. And so they shame you by, their, by your deficiencies to be quiet. You don't even know about what this was going on. You don't even know about that. I can't believe it. You, what, a, what a fool you are. Then they use force of intimidation by actually threatening violence to limit you because you realize that if you don't be quiet, you'll be taken away to jail or you might get beat up right then and there and you may not even have a tongue to speak again. They limit your opportunity using time and location. They physically will restrain you. They limit your audience by limiting your access to them. It's almost like they close the door for you so you can't get there. You know this by social media. Uh, they limit your life. They cause you to question the worth of your message. And, and, and you basically are there saying, if everybody is saying, shh, then you finally are, well, I'll just go home. It's really subtle what the world does. Satan is quite a master at bringing people together to do this. Peter's, uh, Peter's experience was exemplary. It's really interesting when you look there and you see this is the experience of the man of God. How much more do you expect to get away with it being a child of God? told you the third point of the sermon is the antidote of being silent. They prayed that God would engage the matter, that God would empower the messengers. And so when you look here at the antidote, uh, the antidote is in chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. I always quote this in chapter 5, verse 29. He, he, the antidote is, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 29, chapter 5. And it says, um, but Peter and the apostles answered. In other words, they speak up. This is the, the way you have an antidote to the silencing pressures. We must obey God rather than man. We must obey God. The antidote to all of this, and I could get into a lot of it for you, but I just want to simply say it this way, is that boldness is what you get. And then you go truth, uh, you're spirit-led, you're fearless of earthly plans. And you're faithful to God's plans. And I can just simply highlight it this way. If you spend time with God, you've come to church here today and you've had a wow moment, I pray. You know that there is a God and he's alive in this land. You know it. Then don't leave this place and pretend that you don't. If God is on your side, you are the majority. If God has put a, a message in your heart, it says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you've got something to say, I pray that God has put something on your lips to say because he puts something in your heart to, to communicate. You see, the antidote to being silenced is knowing what you know. It's knowing God. Then you won't have somebody else suggesting, did God really say that? Is God really out there? Oh, I saw that maternity hospital in the Ukraine bombed. There must not be a God in this world. All those people that were in the mosque that got blown up, there must not even be a Muslim God. He didn't even protect them. It's almost as if the way that the world keeps talking is that there's no God, no God, no God, no God, and no God. That's N-O. The antidote is K-N. O-W, God. The more you know God, the more you're going to know when to speak. The more you're going to know when you have to speak up. You're going to be able to quote just Peter in 529. We, I have to obey God. I don't have to obey man. 
I don't have to do what the governor says. I don't have to do what the president says. I don't have to do what the, the Hague says. I don't have to do what my wife says. I had to get that in. I have to obey God rather than man or woman. Now, you guys laugh a little bit at this, but the whole point, who are you listening to? You listen to the voices that often say the things that you want to hear. You often go to places where you feel the most comfortable. And you'll get up and walk out of places where you don't feel like it. When you find people that are saying stuff to you that you shouldn't hear, a lot of times you're going to get up, dust the feet off your, uh, dust, get the dust off your shoes and just move on. And we want to gravitate. Birds of a feather want to flock together. But the challenge that I'm giving you is that God has called us to go into the world and to communicate this message that there is a God in Israel. It's the exact same words that David said to Goliath when people were not thinking about religion. When David stood before Goliath, that nine-foot dude and little David, with his tiny little sling, he was too small to be able to hold the sword. He's standing up there, and the message that he communicates is better than what the stone communicated. He says, there is a God here. And the God that we know is the winner. He will triumph. You can shame him, but he is real. You know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know why we know about them? Or as the Veggie Tales calls them, Rakshak and Benny? The reason we know about these characters is because they had a message that they couldn't bottle up. They just didn't zip the lip and say, okay, I'll bow the knee when I hear the music. No, they were going to communicate that there is a God. And they knew him. And if you look at the message that they told to Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> makes me feel like a spiritual dwarf. Those three young men said, there's a God, and he can take care of me. But if he chooses to let me die in this furnace... That's on him. I'm still going to trust him. You see, we know that same God. And I don't know what God has in store for you. This week we had one of our church members have to go through a surgery. There was a mass that had to be removed. And they had an oncologist there as well as the other doctors. And why did they have an oncologist there? Because we were afraid that it was going to be bad news. My issue is not the oncologist, it's not even the tumor, it's the question of why, God, did you have to put this person through that? All of the ramifications, all the prayers that were offered up, all the, the anxiety that's connected to it that we're all trying not to have, and the loved ones that have to change schedules, and they come here, there, and everywhere, and everybody's world seemed to be turned upside down. We know K-N-O-W God. And God brought this into that person's life, Romans 8, 28, for good. And he's doing it to you too. As I wrap up this message, and I pray that it's not too long, we are to live at peace. The peace starts within our own hearts. If you know God, K-N-O God, K-N-O-W, you will have peace. And you'll love others by meeting their needs not by cajoling or conforming to the world. If we hold our peace, then the rocks are going to cry out. When Jesus went to, the, went to the cross, remember he opened not his mouth? Some of you could go around and say, I want to be like Jesus and I'm not going to open my mouth. But the scripture said, as a lamb before his shearers was dumb, he didn't open his mouth. When he went and endured the cross, that's why he stayed quiet. He hushed so that he could do what had to be done because it was unfair 
but God was going to work this together for our good. Drew Brees recently, that the, the, uh, the quarterback from the Saints, before he retired, he spoke up as a proud American. He said, I'm proud of the flag. I have relatives that served, and they're veterans. And he spoke up, and he said, I don't want the flag to be dishonored. And guess what the culture tried to do to him? They tried to cancel him immediately. The guy was beloved in New Orleans. He had won all these throwing things, all these talents. I mean, and he's a Christian on top of that with a traditional, beautiful little family. And because he spoke up, the world came crashing down on him, or at least the pressures of certain voices. So much so that he apologized for being patriotic. Now he's, on, now he's out of the NFL so he can be a talker and he can do a lot more things. I'm sure there's other people trying to pressure him now when he does his interviews on TV. I use that illustration for this. Do you know Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul finally did in Acts 9. Before that, he didn't. If you have your Acts 9 moment where God has opened your eyes up to know Jesus, then you can't deny him. They may try to silence you. They may even try to sew your lips together. But you will still communicate that there is a Savior. And it's Jesus. I just want to encourage you. Don't be downcast. Don't be downhearted. When the world comes at you, when they plot against you, when they successfully put you in jail like they actually did to Peter, remember this, that we have a message that's supposed to share to the nations. The lyrics I had right here. We have a story to tell to the nations that can turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy. A story of peace and light. A story of peace and light. We have a song to sing to the nations that shall lift their hearts to the Lord, a song that shall conquer evil and shatter the spear and sword. We have a message to give to the nations that the Lord who reigns above has sent to us his Son to save us and to show us God is love. For we have a Savior to show to the nations whose path of sorrow he's already trod, that all the world's great peoples might come the truth of God. For the darkness shall one day turn to dawning, and the dawning to noonday bright, and Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. Lord Jesus, I do pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you might put it on our lips and, and adorn it in our lives and manifest it in our loves. I pray that there would not be a family member that doesn't know that we know K-N-O-W, Jesus. And I pray that you would give us opportunity to let our neighbors know that we K-N-O-W, Jesus. And I pray that you would give us opportunity to get the gospel to people that we don't know, whether they're in government nearby or whether they're in foreign lands, or whether they're refugees like Christian uh, Reinhold is pursuing, is going to join, or the seeps that are over there preparing in a, another uh, European country that's starting to absorb the thousands and thousands of refugees. I pray that they might be able to tell others about Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven whereby people can get what they need the forgiveness of sin and peace with God and a place in heaven 
which he offers because of of Calvary's accomplishment. I pray your blessing on this message. May it equip us to not be afraid of whatever comes our way, for we know that your truth will not be canceled. In Jesus' name, amen.